Stamps.com, postage on demand. Print your own postage and shipping labels in seconds. Click instantly, buy, and calculate exact postage. Print postage Print postage labels, envelopes, or place paper. Mail FX postage and mail anywhere in the world. Give stamps.com a try. Get five dollars in free postage. Check free check offer details on stamps.com. Corporate postage solutions have more than two locations. The stamps.com enterprises is the postage solution for you. Shipping solutions, process and print. Shipping labels, fast, enjoy shipping, discounts, and more. Stamps.com, U.S. postage meters, the choice is clear. Stamps.com offers more features at a fraction of the cost. Approved licensed vendor of USPS, save big with discounted rates from USPS and UPS. Stamps.com is an independent vendor of the USPS and UPS. Here's how it works. Open Stamps.com account. Simply click the Get Started button to sign up for Stamps.com and get access to all the services of the post office right from your computer 24-7. Even get discounts you can't get at the post office. Try it out with a $5 free postage. Stamps.com will give you four weeks to see if they are right for you. Stamps.com is so confident you'll like them. They'll also throw in five dollars free postage to use to, during the four weeks don't pay unless you stay cancel your account online or call one 608 2677 to cancel within the four-week trial period and pay no service fee the monthly fee is just 17.99 plus like ethical taxes if any including the first month your service will continue in, in uninterrupted as long as you do not cancel. You are 24-7 post office. Send, send invoices, letters, packages, print official USPS postage, domestic or international. No more guesswork. How much postage? What What mail class? Stamps.com will figure it out for you. Eliminate trips to the post office. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. 24-7. Do more than a postage meter for less. Avoid hidden fees. Experiment for fees, equi oh, equipment, insurance, and there's no extra hardware to buy or lease. Never pay full price for stamps again. Get postage discounts you can't even get at the post office. Custom, su custom support always ready to help. Available by phone, email, or chat. Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Not just for small office mailing, multi-locations, solutions, shipping solutions, and warehouse solutions. ThriveMarket.com Healthy living made easy. Guaranteed savings on your favorite organic brands delivered to your door. Healthy groceries shouldn't break the bank. Low price promise find a product cheaper elsewhere. Thrive Market will beat the price. How it works, build your order, shop 6,000 plus wholesome products, curate just for members, never run out, get recurring deliveries on a schedule personalized to you. 
You're in control. Easily add or remove items, skip a delivery, or pause any time. Your new one-stop shop. From organic pantry staples to clean beauty to non-toxic home, shop by over 70 diets and values. Gluten-free, ketogenic, organic, vegan, thoughtfully sourced seafood. Thrive Market is aligned closely with key industry watchdogs to identify partners who watch, who catch sustainable and traceable seafood for $5 a month for a risk-free trial for 30 days. Fast, free, carbon-neutral shipping, free gifts and samples. Every membership gives to someone in need. Better for you and the planet. Ethical and sustainable sourcing. Carbon-neutral shipping. Zero-waste warehouses. Recyclable, compostable packaging. Thrive also gives. Every annual membership sponsors a free one for a family in need. Thrive's mission is to help make organic foods more accessible. Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Hope you're ready for part three of U.S. President number 21, Chester A. Arthur. Presidency, 1881-1885. Arthur arrived in Washington, D.C. on September 21st. On September 20th, he retook the oath of office, this time before Chief Justice Morrison R. Way. Arthur took a step to ensure procedure compliance, there had been a lingering question about whether a state court judge, Brady, could administer the fe federal oath of office. He initially took up residence at the home of Senator John P. Jones while at White House remodeling had, he had ordered was carried out, including addition of an elaborate 50-foot glass screen by Louis Comfort Tiffany. Arthur's sister, Mary Arthur McElroy, Served as White House hostess for her widowed brother, Arthur became Washington's most eligible bachelor, and his social life became the subject of rumors, though romantically he remained singular, singularly devoted to the memory of his late wife. His son, Chester Jr., was then a freshman at Princeton University, and his daughter, Nell, stayed in New York with the governess until 1882. When she arrived, Arthur shielded her from the intrusive press as much as he could. Arthur quickly became, came into conflict with Garfield's cabinet, most of whom represented his opposition within the party. He asked the cabinet members to remain until December, then Congress would reconvene, but Treasury Secretary William Wyndham submitted his recognition in October to enter a Senate race in his home state, state of Minnesota. Arthur then selected Charles J. Fulger, his friend and fellow New York stalwart, as Wyndham's replacement. Attorney General Wayne McVie was Next to resign, believing that as a former, he had no place in, the, in an Arthur cabinet. Despite Arthur's personal appeal to remain, McVie resigned in December 1881, and Arthur replaced him with Benjamin H. H. Brewster, a Philadelphia lawyer and machine politician, reputed to have reform, reformist leanings. Blaine Nemus as a stalwart faction remained Secretary of State until Congress reconvened, then departed immediately. Conkling expects Arthur to appoint him in Blaine's place, but the brother chose Frederick T. Frayling Hyacin of New Jersey, a stalwart recommended by ex-president Grant. Frayling Hyacin advised Arthur not to fill any future vacancy with stalwarts, but when Postmaster General James resigned in January 1882, Arthur selected Timothy O. Howe, a Wisconsin stalwart. Navy Secretary William H. Hunt was next to resign in April 1882, and Arthur attempted to a more balanced approach by appointing half-breed William E. Chandler to the post on Blaine's recommendation. Finally, when Interior Secretary Samuel J. Cooper resigned that same month, Arthur appointed 
Henry M. Teller, a Colorado stalwart to the office of the cabinet members Arthur had inherited from Garfield, only Secretary of War Robert Tom Lincoln, remained for the entire entirety of Arthur's term. Civil Service Reform In the 1870s, a scandal was exposed in which contractors for Star Postal Routes were, were greatly overpaid for their services with the connivance of government officials, including Second Assistant Postmaster General Thomas J. Brady and former Senator Stephen Wallace Dorsey. Reformers feared Arthur as a former supporter of the spoil system would not commit to continuing the investigation into the scandal, but Arthur's attorney, General Brewster, did in fact continue the investigation begun by McVie and hired notable Democratic lawyers William W. Kerr and Richard T. Merrick to strengthen the prosecution team and forestall the skeptics. Although Arthur had worked closely with Dorsey before his presidency once in office, he supported the investigation and forced the resignation of officials suspected in the scandal. In 1880, trial of ringleaders resulted in convictions for two minor conspirators and hung uh, and a hung jury for the rest. After a jury came forward with allegations that the defendants attempted to bribe him, the judge set aside the guilty verdict and granted a new trial. Before the second trial began, Arthur B. removed five federal office holders who were sympathetic with the defense, including a former senator. The second trial began in December 1882 and lasted until July 1883 and again did not result in a guilty verdict. Failure to obtain a conviction tarnished the administration's image, but Farther did succeed in putting a stop to the fraud. Garfield's assassination by a deranged office seeker amplified the public demand for civil service reform. Both Democratic and Republic leaders realized that they could attract the vote of reformers by turning against the spoil system, and by 1882, a bipartisan effort began in favor of reform. In 1880, Democratic Senator George H. Pendleton of Ohio introduced legislation that requires selection of civil service based on merit as determined by an ex examination. This legislation greatly expanded similar service reforms attempted by President Franklin Pierce 30 years earlier. In his first annual presidential address to Congress in 1881, Arthur requested civil service reform, legislation, and Pendleton again introduced his, his bill, but Congress did not pass it. Republicans lost seats in the 1882 congressional elections in which Democrats campaigned on reform issue. As a result, the lame duck session of Congress, <coughs> of Congress was more amenable to civil service reform. The Senate approved Pendleton's bill 38-5, to 5, and the House Senate concurred by a vote of 155 to 47. Arthur signed the Pendleton Service Reform Act into law on January 16, 1883. In just two years' time, an unrepentant stalwart had become the president who ushered in long-awaited civil service reform. At first, the act applied only to 10% of federal jobs, and without proper implementation by the president, it could have gone no further. Even after he signed the act into law, it's a proposal down to Arthur's commitment to reform. To their surprise, he acted quickly to appoint the members of the Civil Service Commission that the law created. Naming reformers Norman Bridgman, Eaton, John Milton Gregory, and Leroy D. Tomman as commissioners. The chief examiner, Silas W. Burt, was a longtime reformer who had been Arthur's opponent when the two men worked at the New York Custom House. The commission issued its first rules in May 1883. By 1884, half of all postal officials and three-quarters of the custom service jobs were, were to be awarded by merit. That year, Arthur expressed satisfaction with the new system, praising his effectiveness in securing competent and faithful public service in protecting and appointing officers of the government from the pressure of personal uh, importunity and 
from the labor of examining the claims or pretensions of rival candidates for public employment. Surplus and the tariff. With high revenue held over from wartime taxes, the federal government had collected more than it spent since 1866. By 1882, the surplus reached $145 million. Over opinions varied on how to balance the budget. The Democrats wished to lower tariffs in order to reduce revenues and the cost of imported goods, while Republicans believed that high tariffs ensued high wages, ensured high wages in manufacturing and mining. They preferred the government to spend more on internal improvements and reduce excise taxes. Arthur agreed with his party and in 1882 called for the abolition of excise taxes on everything except liquor, as well as a simplification on the complex tariff structure. In May of that year, Representative William D. Kelly of Pennsylvania introduced a bill to establish a tariff commission. The bill passed and Arthur signed it into law, but appointed mostly protectionists to the committee. Republicans were pleased with the committee's makeup, but were surprised when, in December 1882, they submitted a report to Congress calling for tariffs averaging between 20 and 25 percent. The commission's recommendations were ignored, however, as the House Ways and Means Committee, dominated by protectionists, provided a 10% reduction. After a conference with the Senate, the bill with that emerged only reduced tariffs by an average of 1.47%. The bill passed both houses nearly on March 3, 1883, the last full day of the 47th Congress. Arthur signed the measure into law with no effect on the surplus. Congress attempted to balance the budget from the other side of the ledger with increased spending on the 1882 rivers and Harbors Act in the unprecedented amount of $19 million. While Arthur was not opposed to internal improvements, the scale of the bill disturbed him as it did its narrow focus on particular localities rather than projects that benefited a larger part of the nation. On August 1st, 1882, Arthur vetoed the bill to widespread popular acclaim. In his veto message, his principal objection was that it appropriated funds for purposes not for the common defense or general warfare, and which do not promote commerce among the states. Congress overrode this his veto to the next day. Veto the next day, and the new law reduced the surplus by nineteen million dollars. <coughs> Republicans considered the law a success at the time, but later concluded that it contributed to their loss of seats in the elections of eighteen eighty two. Foreign affairs and immigration. During the Garfield administration, Secretary of State James G. Blaine attempted to invigorate United States diplomacy in Latin America, urging reciprocal trade agreements and offering to mediate disputes among the Latin American nations. Blaine venturing a greater involvement in affairs south of the Rio Grande proposed a Pan-American Conference in 1882 to discuss trade and an end to the War of the Pacific being fought by Bolivia, Chile, and Peru. Blaine did not remain in office long enough to see the effort through, and when Frederick T. Freeland Heisen replaced him at the end of 1881, the conference ever slapsed. Freeland Heisen also discontinued Blaine's peace efforts in the War of the Pacific, fearing that the United States might be drawn into the conflict. Arthur and Freeland, Freeling Heisen continued Blaine's efforts to encourage trade among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. A treaty with Mexico providing for a reciprocal tariff reduction was signed in 1882 and approved by the Senate in 1884. Legislation required to bring the treaty into force failed in the House, however, rendering it a dead letter. 
Several efforts at reciprocal trade treaties with Santo Domingo and Spain's American colonies were defeated by February 1885, and an existing reciprocity treaty with the Kingdom of Hawaii was allowed to lapse. The 47th Congress spent a great deal of time on administration, on immigration, and at times was in accord with Arthur. In July 1882, Congress easily passed a bill regulating steamships that carried immigrants to the United States. To their surprise, Arthur vetoed it and requested revisions, which they made, and Arthur then approved. He also signed in August that of that year the Immigration Act of 1882, which levied a 50% tax on immigrants to the United States and excluded from entry the mentally ill, the intellectually disabled criminals, or any other person potentially dependent upon public assistance. A more contentious debate materialized over the state of Chinese immigrants. In January 1868, the Senate had ratified the Burlingame Treaty with China, allowed an unrestricted flow of Chinese into the country. Allowing an unrestricted flow of Chinese into the country. As the economic soured after the pandem panic of 1873, Chinese immigrants were blamed for depressing workmen's wages. In reaction, Congress in 1887 attempted to abrogate the 1868 treaty by passing a Chinese Exclusion Act, but President Hayes vetoed it. Three years later, after China had agreed to treaty revisions, Congress tried to again to exclude working-class Chinese laborers. Senator John F. Miller of California introduced another Chinese Exclusion Act that blocked entry of Chinese laborers for a 20-year period. The bill passed the Senate and House by overwhelming margins, but this as well was vetoed by Arthur, who concluded that 20-year ban to be a breach of, of the renegotiated re Treaty of 1880. That treaty allowed only a reasonable suspension of immigration. Eastern newspapers praised the veto while it was condemned in the western states. Congress was able to override the veto but passed a new bill reducing the immigration ban to 10 years. Although he still objected to this denial of entry to Chinese laborers, Arthur acceded to the compromise measure signed in the Chinese Exclusion Act in Law on May 6, 1882. The Chinese Exclusion Act attempted to stop all Chinese immigration into the United States for 10 years with exceptions for diplomats, teachers, students, merchants, and travelers. It was widely evaded. Naval Reform In the years following the Civil War, American naval powder declined precipitously, shrinking from nearly 700 vessels to just 52, most of which were obsolete. The nation's military focus over the 15 years before Garfield and Arthur's selection had been on the Indian Wars in the West rather than the high seas, but as the region was increasingly pacified, Many in Congress grew concerned at the poor state of the Navy. Garfield Secretary of Navy William H. Hunt advocated reform of the Navy and his successor William E. Chandler appointed an advisory board to prepare a report on modernization. Based on the suggestions in the report, Congress report appropriated funds for the construction of the still of, of three steel protected cruisers, Atlanta, Boston, and Chicago, and an armed dispatch steamer, Dolphin, collectively known as the ABCD Ships or the Squadron of Ev Evolution. Congress also approved funds to rebuild four monitors, Puritan Amphitrite, Monadnock, and Terror, which had lain uncompleted since 1877. The contest to build the ABCD ships were all awarded to the lower builders, John Roach and Sons of Chester, Pennsylvania, even though Roach once employed Secretary Chandler as a lobbyist. Democrats turned against the new Navy project and 
when they won control of the 48th Congress, refused to appropriate funds for seven more steel warships. Even without the additional ships, the State of the Navy approved, when after several construction delays and the last of the new ships entered service in 1889. Civil Rights Like his Republican predecessor, Arthur struggled with the question of how his party was to challenge the Democrats in the South and how, if at all, to protect the civil rights of black Southerners. Since the end of the Reconstruction, conservative white Democrats, or Bourbon Democrats, had regained power in the South, and the Republican Party dwindled rapidly as our party supporters in the region. Blacks were disenfranchised. One crack in the solidly Democratic South emerged with the growth of a new party, the Readjusters in Virginia. Having won an election in that state on a platform of more education funding for black and white schools alike, and abolition of the poll tax and the whipping post, many of the Northern Republicans saw the readjusted as more as a more viable ally in the South than the more abundant Southern Republican Party. Arthur agreed and directed the federal patronage in Virginia through the readjusters rather than the Republicans. He followed the same pattern in other Southern states, forging coalitions within the Democ within dependents and Greenback Party members. Some black Republicans felt betrayed by the pragmatic gambit, but others, including Frederick Douglass and ex-Senator Blanche K. Bruce, endorsed the administration's actions as the Southern independents had more liberal racial policies than the Democrats. Arthur's coalition policy was only successful in Virginia, however, and by 1885, the readjuster move began to collapse with the election of a Democratic president. Other federal action on behalf of blacks was equally ineffective when the Supreme Court struck down the Civil Rights Act of 1875 in the Civil Rights Cases, 1883. Arthur expressed his disagreement with the decision in a message to Congress, but was unable to persuade Congress to pass any new legislation in his place. Arthur did, however, effectively intervene to overturn a court-martial ruling against the black West Point cadet Johnson Whitaker after the Judge Advocate General of the Army, David G. Swim, found the prosecution's case against Whitaker to be illegal and based on racial bias. The administration faced a different challenge in the West, where the LDS Church was under government pressure to stop the practice of polygamy in Utah Territory. Garfield believed polygamy was criminal behavior and was morally detrimental to family values. And Arthur's views were, for once in line with the predecessors in 1882, signed the Edmonds Law into the Edmonds Act into law, the legislation made polygamy a felony, a federal crime barring polygamists to both for public office and the right to vote. Native American policy. The Arthur administration was challenged by changing relations with Western Native American tribes. The American Indian Wars were winding down and public sentiment was shifting toward more favorable treatment of Native Americans. Arthur urged Congress to increase funding for Native American education, which it did in 1884, although not to the extent wished. he wished. He also favored a move to the allotment system under which in individual Native Americans, rather than tribes, would own land. Arthur was unable to convince Congress to adopt the idea during his administration, but in 1887, the Dawes Act changed the law to favor such a system. The allotment system was favored by liberal reformers at the time, but eventually proved detrimental to Native Americans, as most of their land was resold at low prices to white speculators. During Arthur's presidency, settlers and cattle ranchers continued to encroach on Native American territory. Arthur initially resisted efforts, but after Secretary of the Interior Henry M. Teller, an opponent of allotment, assured him that the lands were not protected, 
Arthur opened up the Crow Creek Reservation in the Dakota Territory to settlers by executive order in 1885. Arthur's successor Grover Cleveland, finding that title belonged to the Native Americans, revoked Arthur's order a few months later. Health, travel, and 1884 election. Shortly after becoming president, Arthur was diagnosed with Bright's disease, Achidia Ama, now referred to as nephritis. He attempted to keep his condition private, but by 1883, rumors of illness began to circulate. He had become the become thinner and more aged in appearance and struggled to keep the pace of the presidency. To rejuvenate his health outside the confines of Washington, Arthur and some political friends traveled to Florida in April 88. April 1883. The vacation had the opposite effect and Arthur suffered from intense pain before returning to Washington. Later that year, on the advice of Missouri Senator George Graham Vest, he visited the Yellowstone National Park, reported coming to the presidential party, helping to publicize the new national park system. The Yellowstone trip was more beneficial to Arthur's health than his Florida excursion, and he returned to Washington refreshed after two months of travel. As the 1884 presidential election approached, James G. Blaine was considered the favorite for the Republican nomination, but Arthur too contemplated a run for the for a full term as president. In the months leading up to the 1884 Republican National Convention, however, Arthur began to realize that neither faction of the Republican Party was prepared to give him their support, their full support. The half-breeds were again solidly behind Blaine, while Star Wars were undecided. Some backed Arthur with others, considering Senator John A. Logan of Illinois. Reform-minded Republicans friendlier to Arthur after he endorsed civil service reform were still not certain enough of his reform credentials to back him as over Senator George F. Edmonds of Vermont, who had long favored their cause. Business leaders supported him, as did Southern Republicans who owed their jobs to his control of the patriot, but by the time they began to rally around him, Arthur had decided against a serious campaign for the nomination. He kept up a token effort, believing that to drop out would cast doubt on his actions in office and raise questions about his health, but by the time the convention began in June, his defeat was assured. Blaine led on the first ballot, and by the fourth ballot, he had a majority. Arthur telegraphed his congratulations to Blaine and said his defeat with equanimity. He played no role in the 1884 campaign, which Blaine would later blame for his loss at November to the Democrat nominee, Grover Cleveland. Administration Cabinet Judicial Appointments Arthur made the appointment <coughs> to fill two vacancies on the United States Supreme Court. The first vacancy arose <coughs> in July 1881 with the death of Associate Justice Nathan Clifford. A Democrat who had been a member of the court since before the Civil War. Arthur nominated Horace Gray, a jurist from the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, to replace him, and the nomination was easily confirmed. A second event occurred when Associate Justice Ward Hunt retired in January 1882. Arthur first nominated his old political boss, Roscoe Conkling. He doubted that Conkling would accept, but he felt obligated to offer a high office to his former patron. The Senate confirmed the nomination, but as expected, Conkling declined it. The last time a confirmed nominee declined an appointment. Senator George Edmonds was Arthur's next choice, but he declined to be considered. Instead, Arthur nominated Samuel Blatchford, who had been a judge on the Second Second Court of Appeals for the first prior four years. Blatchford accepted his nomination, was approved by the Senate within two weeks. Blatchford served on the court until his death in 1893. Later Years 
Arthur left office in 1885 and returned to its New York City home. Two months before the end of his term, several New York stalwarts approached him to request that he run for the United States Senate, but he declined, preferring to re return to his old law practice at Arthur Knevels and Ransom. His health limited his activity with the firm, and Arthur served only of counsel. He took on a few assignments with the firm and was often too ill to leave his house. He managed a few public appearances until the end of 1885. After spending summer 1886 in New London, the Connecticut, he returned home where he became seriously ill on November 16th, ordered nearly all of his papers, both personal and official, burned. The next morning, Arthur suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and never regained conscious. He died the following day, November 18th, at the age of 57. On November 22nd, a private funeral was held at the Church of the Heavenly Rest in New York City, attended by President Grover. Cleveland and ex-president Hayes, among other notables. Arthur was buried with his family members and ancestors in the Albany Rural Cemetery in Menans, New York. He was laid beside his wife in a sarcophagus on a large corner of the plot. In 1889, a monument was placed in Arthur's burial plot by sculptor Ephraim Kaiser of New York, consisting of a giant bronze female angel figure placing a bronze palm leaf on a granite sarcophagus. Arthur's post-president was second shortest of all presidents who lived past the presidency after James K. Polk's brief three-month retirement before he died. Legacy. Several Grand Army <coughs> of the Republic Post were named for Arthur, including Jeff Goff, Kansas, Lawrence, Nebraska, Medford, Oregon, and Oxford, Wisconsin. On April 5, 1882, Arthur was elected to the District Columbia Commandery of the Military Order of the Laurel Legion of the United States. Mollus, as a third-class companion, Exilia number 02430, the honorary membership category for militia officers and civilians who made significant countries to the war efforts. Union College Arthur Unico awarded Arthur the honorary degree of LLD in 1883. In 1898, the Arthur Memorial Statue, a 15-foot, 4.6-meter bronze figure of Arthur standing in on a bar granite pedestal, was created by sculptor George Edwin Bissell in a stall at Madison Square in New York City. The statue was dedicated in 1899 and unveiled by Arthur's sister, Mary Arthur McElroy, at the dedication of Secretary of War Elihu Root. Described Arthur as wise in statesmanship and firm and effective in the administration, while acknowledging that Arthur was isolated in office and unloved by his own party. Arthur's unpopularity in life carried over into his assessment by historians and his reputation after leaving office disappeared. By 1935, historian George F. House said that Arthur had achieved obscurity in strange contrast to a significant part in American history. By 1975, Arthur Thomas C. Reeves would write that Arthur's appointments of unprotected were unusual sound, the corruption and scandal that dominated business and positive of the period did not tarnish his administration. A 2004 biographer Zachary Carabell wrote, although Arthur was physically stretched and emotionally strained, he strove to do what was right for the country. Indeed, Howe had earlier surmised Arthur adopted a code for his own political behavior, but subject to three strengths, he remained to everyone a man of his word. He kept scripture free from corrupt graft. He maintained a personal dignity, affable and genial, through though he might be. These restraints distinguished him sharply from the stereotype politician. Arthur's townhouse, Chester A. Arthur home, was sold to William Randolph Hearst since 1944. It has been the location of 
Calistias Spice Emporium. Thank you for listening to part three of U.S. President number 21, Chester A. Arthur. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you stay safe during this coronavirus pandemic that extends into 2021 as we look forward to a normalcy now the vaccines are out. Hope you enjoyed the episode and look forward to next week's President Grover Cleveland. As always, have a good week and thank you for listening. Goodbye.